Okay, everybody, the time has come. I must pick a book I have never read and summarize it. And I have to tell you in all seriousness <laughs> that this part of the episode, the part I'm reading right now, was written before I started the reading and the summary process. I need you to understand how apprehensive I am about this episode because uh, not only am I wading into unfamiliar waters, we are at the part of the cycle where I cover a book with a cover that makes you stop in your tracks, cough, laugh, <laughs> and wonder what series of events in the universe led to it existing. There were several candidates for this episode, and I ended up going with the one I hated the most. <laughs> Guys, we're covering a book I almost didn't buy. Hello, Earthlings and Spacelings. Welcome to the Fantasy Podcast, where we look at science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read. Too old, too weird, already a movie, whatever. We cover it here. I'm your host, Erica Brickley, the crazy lady who organizes her books by color or author or however I feel like that day. You can find my library on Instagram at Erica Brickley, spelled E-R-I-K-A, B as in boy, R-I-C-K-L-E-Y, to comment on covers you're curious about. And on YouTube, you can comment on this episode as well as subscribe and turn on notifications to know when the next episode is out. I'm aiming for a manageable bi-weekly schedule. We are on the third book in the rotation that goes like this. One, obscure titles. Two, classic literature. Three, bizarre cover art. And four, children's books. I'm really looking forward to the next episode, so make sure your notifications are turned on. Once again, I am going to reiterate that I am writing this part of the script before I've read the book, so I can record my genuine reaction to it. <laughs> that is because today's book is one I bought because I hated it so much. If I react to a cover that way, I have to buy it, right? My collection includes beautiful art, hilarious scenarios, incredible extraterrestrials, and downright ugly books. <laughs> and I do feel a little bad for hating on this cover so much, considering that it was painted by Michael Herring, who has also been responsible for some really iconic covers. He painted those classic Lord of the Rings covers with the archway and a character of note standing in a dynamic pose, including the cover for The Hobbit that I've seen more than any other, where a Bilbo is uh, holding his sword Sting inside a cave with Gollum in the background. I actually own a couple other books he's designed, like Alan Dean Foster's Ice Rigger series. My point is that today's book proves a few points. One is that you can never truly judge a book by its cover, and the other is that you can never be sure what part of a story will inspire an artist. <laughs> At this point, I'm beginning to wonder how often artists really read a couple chapters, grabbed a notable scene, and just got it done. Okay, let's describe it. This episode is all about Quest of the Three Worlds by Cordwainer Smith, a Del Rey book by Ballantine published in 1966 with an introduction by John J. Pierce from 1978. The cover features a close-up on a landscape made up of emerald green gemstones forming two sharp rocky hills. Between the two hills flows a river of charred orange and red lava. Nothing else of the landscape is visible besides the soft lavender sunset colors of the sky beyond. Standing on the hill to the right is a brown horse standing in a defensive position, head low, with what looks like uh, three oxygen tanks strapped to its back. 
Two pipes lead from the tank valves to a silver cup that covers the horse's nose and mouth at the end of its long face. Leaping from the hill on the left is an orange tiger, except that its face is that of an angry man. Snarling with his huge fangs, eyes fixed on the horse who he plans to pounce on. How does that sound? Totally weird? Not too crazy? My first impression when I came across Quest of the Three Worlds was that I didn't much care for it. Uh, what my what was my violent reaction? <laughs> so I put it back. <laughs> but after a few minutes, I went back to look at it again, possibly to show to whoever I was shopping with. Parts of the scene are very beautiful. I really love the sparkly emerald hills with the lava passing between them. Uh, it's a nice skyline. But why, oh why, is there a human-faced tiger battling a horse wearing an oxygen tank? The tiger's face is really unsettling. <laughs> the perspective of the picture makes him look kind of small since he's farther away than the horse. And, and the face is the biggest part of him. He's got a bit of a Danny DeVito circa Matilda 1996 thing going on. Or maybe if the penguin from Batman Returns had a rounder nose. The tiger isn't pale skin like the penguin. His cheeks are flushed pink to match his snarl. Honestly, the hardest part of making this episode might be choosing what to put in the thumbnail. Do I go with the man-faced cat or the oxygen tank horse? If you clicked on this video, you know better than I do as of writing this. <laughs> Hello, future viewer. How is the weather? Above the strange artwork is the author's name, the book title, and a short preview line. Casher O'Neill sought justice, hoping it was not just another name for revenge. I've said this in a previous episode, but I can't decide how to feel about character names being used on the cover. This isn't a Jane or a Kira or a Katza or a Tally. His name is Casher O'Neill. Why do I need to know the main character's full legal name above all else? Why is it worth putting on the cover? I don't know. Comment if you have some idea or if you disagree with me. As usual, I'm not going to read you the back of the book just in case it spoils something. You're already here and ready to listen to the plot, so there's really no point. However, I will read you the highlights. Like so many sci-fi paperbacks, this one has a brief synopsis on the back to draw in would-be readers, and it was really common for it to not be one block of text like you see mostly today, but like little snippets separated by bigger, bolded text. For Quest of the Three Worlds, these highlighted lines are On the Gem Planet on the Storm Planet, and on the Sand Planet. I really like alien worlds and variety, so reading this convinced me that I had to add this confusing, possibly ugly, possibly spectacularly beautiful book to my collection. And now, much to my surprise, I am actually going to sit down and read it. Since this paperback copy doesn't have an author bio, I looked up Cordwainer Smith's Wikipedia page. Uh, I know that... If this was a research paper, uh, that would not be allowed, but uh, I don't have a lot of time to go sifting through the library. So, The name he was born with was Paul Myron Anthony Linnebarger, uh, but he wrote as Cordwainer Smith and also Felix C. Forrest. He was in the U.S. Army, he studied East Asia, and he was an expert in psychological warfare. So we might be in for a real treat with this book. For an author I've never heard of before, his Wikipedia entry is pretty long. He grew up moving from East Asia and America, uh, moving around East Asia and America. His godfather was a famous Chinese nationalist named Sun Yat-sen. He graduated from Johns Hopkins University with a degree in poli sci, and he had one glass eye. 
Though he died in his 50s from a heart attack the same year Quest of the Three Worlds was published uh, as a whole, it seems like he made his mark on science fiction based on the lengthy section about his writing style. He wrote several novels, a couple dozen short stories, and nearly 10 nonfiction books about Chinese politics, his godfather, and military tactics. Most of his novels uh, were collections of short stories published posthumously. Now that we have some background to make us excited for the story to come, let's dive into Quest of the Three Worlds. Similar to The Voyage of the Space Beagle, this was once a collection of four novellas, now a single novel. Halt! This is Erica from the future telling you that this book summary and review discuss sensitive topics that may not be for everyone, and almost certainly not for children. Gore and sex will be brought up, though I'll try to keep it light so as not to alienate anyone. Please listen to this episode all the way through before sharing it with others. Part 1. Chapter 1. Kasher O'Neill is a man from the beautiful planet Mizer who is the nephew of Karof, the recent dictator, who was recently ousted by a tyrant called Colonel Wetter. This takeover was supposed to be about reform, but clearly was really about power. Now, Kasher is traveling between planets in the hopes of finding weapons and comrades to oust Wetter, only to find more places where people are concerned with small problems, not the big picture. He receives disbelief or sympathy, but no help. The Instrumentality, the regulatory body overseeing human activity across the stars, has chosen to do nothing except provide Kasher with an unlimited planetary travel pass. Now Kasher has come to Pontopodon, the planet of gems and rich people, and is already losing hope that anyone will care about the oppression of his homeworld. Everyone here is excited about a single, imported horse. Why bother about a horse? he asks. We have lots of them on Mizer. They are four-handed beings, eight times the weight of a man, with only one finger on each of their four hands. The fingernail is very hard and permits them to run fast. That's why our people have them, for running. Philip Vincent, the hereditary dictator on Pontopodon, doesn't understand why anyone would race animals they already know the speed of. But his niece Genevieve thinks it would be exciting. She's an ethereal, tiny beauty. Though imaginative, she's lived her whole life on a planet with gemstones instead of soil. The text says, She had clear gray eyes, well-marked eyebrows, a very artificial coiffer of silver-blonde hair, and the most sensitive little mouth he had ever seen. She conformed to the local fashion of wearing some kind of powder or face cream, which was flesh pink in color, but which had overtones of lilac. As a woman as old as 22, such a coloration would have made the wearer look like an old hag, but on Genevieve it was pleasant, if rather startling. It gave the effect of a happy child playing grown-up and doing the job joyfully and well. When the old hereditary dictator asks Kasher about his history with horses, the young man is forced to admit that he is the nephew of Karoth, the previous dictator on Planet Miser. Although the only heir, or appointed one, Kasher assures his hosts that he is not looking to reinstate the dictatorship, only get rid of Colonel Wetter, who has ruined the people. The hereditary dictator, though as shocked as Genevieve is, decides he might help Kasher on one condition. The young man must open his mind to a telepathic visit. It's an exceptionally invasive request. If you're positive that you know what to do, the old man says, you might be another Colonel Wetter, putting your people through a dozen torments for a utopia that never quite comes true. The hereditary dictator also warns against being like Kasher's uncle Karaf, 
who cared little for anyone but himself, even if he never killed anyone. The deal is this. The hereditary dictator wants the answers to two questions. One, is Kasher the right sort of man? And two, can he determine what the Pantapadons should do with the imported horse? With these answered, the old man will consider giving him a huge green ruby that, with the help of people from other planets, can be made into a terrifying weapon with which he can free the twelve Niles of Miser. However, Genevieve insists on speaking, saying she knows the answers to both questions, either by intuition or research. She was going to show her uncle a tape she made about the horse when the young man was brought in. So, the hereditary dictator calls for chairs and drinks, which are brought in by underpeople like a tiger man, including the expensive luxury of coffee available only to those living on a literal planet of gems. This planet seems to run like a well-oiled machine. The three of them settle, surrounded by servants who have joined them for the film. Chapter 2 The machine projects the tape for them to watch. Narrated by Genevieve, it told the comprehensive story of Pantapadon and showed sweeping views of its wonders. There were the dipsies, enormous canyons slicing into the planet, as well as scenes of the incredible colors of the sparkling landscape. Cliffs of emerald and valleys of tourmaline lit by a lilac-tinted sun. Oxygen-filled domes where the 60,000 wealthy residents spend their time. Meanwhile, Kasher becomes more curious about Genevieve. Though not his usual type, he's impressed by her girlishness, her intelligence, her charm, and her pleasure in being all of those things. He notices her eyeing him as well. The tape then tells the story of Pantapadon's most mysterious resident. In the massive canyon called the Hippie Dipsy that vaguely resembles the silhouette of a woman's form from orbit, there is a single cabin beside the planet's only lake. In the doorway of that cabin sits a mummified man. The text says, In Norstrillian law and custom, they told him that his time had come. They told him to go to the dying house, since he was no longer fit to live. In old North Australia, they are so rich that they let everyone live as long as he wants, unless the old person can't take rejuvenation anymore, even with strewn, and unless he or she gets to be a real pest to the living. If that happens, they are invited to go to the dying house, where they shriek and pant with delirious joy for weeks or days until they finally die of an overload of sheer happiness and excitement. We never knew why this man refused. He stood off-planet and said that he had seen views of the hippie dipsy. He said it was the most beautiful place on all the worlds, and that he wanted to build a cabin there, to live alone, except for his non-human friend. We thought it was some small pet. When we told him that the hippie dipsy was very dangerous, he said that this did not matter in the least to him, since he was old and dying anyhow. Then he offered to pay us 12 times our planetary income if we would lease him 12 hectares on the condition of absolute privacy. No pictures, no scanners, no help, no visitors. Just solitude and scenery. His name was Perino. My great-grandfather asked for nothing more except the written transfer of credit. When he paid it, Perino even asked that he be left alone after he was dead. Not even a vault rocket so that he could either orbit Pantapadon forever, or start a very slow journey to nowhere, the way so many people like it. So this is our first picture of him. We took it when the light went off in the people room, and one of the tiger men told us that he was sure a human consciousness had come to an end in the hippy-dipsy. Soon after, 
The horse Kasher has been hearing about was spotted climbing up a ruby hill out of the hippie dipsy, a set of oxygen tanks strapped to its sides. To the people, underpeople, and robots of Pantapadon, it was a startling creature like nothing they had ever seen. Genevieve informs Kasher that it was a Palomino pony, though he is less impressed than everyone else, having grown up on a planet with lots of horses. The creature is an old stallion with bad teeth and many scars, not fit for breeding or riding, which makes sense since Genevieve said that the man Perino made the horse nearly immortal. The Catwoman, attempting to communicate with the horse, calls for an ornithopter retrieval. She can't understand the horse's neighing language and gets too frustrated to do anything else, simply assuming it is an underperson like her. Then the tape changes to a recording of that very rescue. The horse managed to climb the slippery gem cliffs about five kilometers out of the hippie dipsy, and now is stuck in a very precarious place, alongside a crevice lined with molten fire. Among the rescuers is a tiger man, who offers to make the jump over the crevice, secure a harness around the horse, and leap back with him in his arms. Unfortunately, the horse is scared of the pouncing tiger man, and makes a great leap across the crevice himself, landing awkwardly and accidentally knocking one true man to his death. Robots swarm him, get him harnessed, and send him away with the ornithopter before anyone really comprehended what had happened. That is the end of the video. The hereditary dictator and Genevieve look at Kasher expectantly, asking him to solve the problem. Chapter 3 After the telepathic hereditary dictator has a look through Kasher's mind, his niece Genevieve leads the offworlder across yards of amethyst, pebbles, and other gems to the hospital where the horse is being kept sedated. He doesn't mention it, but Kasher discovers that being outside in the low atmospheric pressure of Pontopodon makes his skin itch almost unbearably. He has on an oxygen helmet, and the air outside is almost breathable, but not quite. Quote, In later years, he sometimes wondered what might have happened. Was the itching a part of his destiny, which saved him for the freedom of the city of Kahir and the planet Mizer? Might not the innocent, brilliant loveliness of the girl have otherwise tempted him to forswear his duty and stay forever on Pontopodon? Unquote. They reach the hospital, walking through a doorway decorated with diamonds and rubies the size of bricks. A doctor brings them to the room with the horse, where the poor thing is looking worse for wear. He's covered in cuts, and one of his hooves has a split in it that has to be fixed. The doctor knows something about Mizer. Kasher's home planet, and wants to know how a nephew of Karath the Dictator came to have a first name like Kasher. Kasher explains that on Mizer, everyone has a baby name, then a young man name, that is more of a nickname, and finally a career name. Right now, he goes by his nickname because he hopes his career will be freeing the Twelve Niles from Colonel Wetter. He got the nickname Kasher when he was very young, and he would ask grown-ups for cash, which increased his association with his spendthrift uncle. Curiosity satisfied, the doctor explains that the horse is dying, but cannot die. His master Perino gave him so much strune, the immortality-inducing drug, that the animal's big heart continues to pump when it would rather stop. Knowing something about horses from the Miser stables, Kasher orders some sugar and a vegetarian underperson telepath. The doctor is perfectly willing to bring anyone the horse needs, as it is a special case being scrutinized by the hereditary dictator. But he quietly warns Kasher that few visitors to Pontopodon who aren't traitors make it out of orbit alive. The health of this horse may be the would-be revolutionary's ticket to survival. 
Shocked by this insight, Kasher is suddenly worried for himself. Fortunately, the doctor has the idea to call his loyal and sympathetic dog woman, since dogs and horses are friendly with each other. While he goes to fetch her, Kasher explains what they're up to to Genevieve, and wonders if the princess is in favor of her uncle's treacherous habits. Chapter 4 Kasher can't help but be intrigued by the old, wrinkled dog woman, who was almost perfectly humaniform. He can tell that she is happier and more satisfied with her life than his rich uncle was, than Mizzer's tyrant wetter is, or than Kasher himself is in his quest. She picks up on his thoughts. You're a prisoner of yourself, she says. Someday you will escape to unimportance and happiness. The dog woman can also tell that Kasher likes the old domesticated horse who was so determined to climb out of hell back to people. Together, Kasher and the dog woman, as well as Genevieve upon request, link minds with the horse. Quote, The sand splashed beneath their feet as they ran towards the capital city of Kahir. The delicious pressure of a man's body was on their backs. The red sky of Mizer gleamed over them. Unquote. A horse's mind is simple, but perceptive. He misses having dirt to run on and a rider to accompany him after being made immortal, taken to a rock-hard place with no real space, and belonging to someone who wouldn't ride him. When asked by Kasher, whose thoughts are perceived by each other as words would not be, the horse understands that to die is no horse, and to live is being a horse. Kasher asks if the horse wants to die, and he says he does if it, if it means staying in this room forever. Genevieve asks what the horse would like better, and he answers simply, dirt beneath my hooves and wet air again, and a man on my back. The dog woman takes over the conversation now, telling the horse to sleep, and he will awaken to what he desires. Her sleep command is so strong that it nearly knocks out the other two. She then tells the doctor what the horse needs for atmosphere, as well as what type of hypnosis would keep it happy and believing it's walking on dirt. There's no point in trying to fix the old heart muscle. Most importantly, the horse needs a rider. Having played her part, the ever-cheerful and playfully mocking dog woman curtsies to Genevieve and says to Kasher, You will remain miserable as long as you seek justice. But when you give up, righteousness will come to you and you will be happy. Don't worry, you're young and it won't hurt you to suffer a few more years. Youth is an extremely curable disease, isn't it? With that, she happily returns to her job overseeing the kitchen dishwashing machines. Now that the horse is in better shape, the hereditary dictator and his council must decide what to do with it. Most of them think they should just kill the horse and eat it. After all, it's not even a useful underperson, just an animal. Or they can sell it, since true man-home animals can be rare out here. When they've said their piece, the dictator tells them that what they do with the horse is not really about the horse. It is about their own conscience. Whether they help the creature a little or harm the creature a little, it comes down to their own integrity. The legacy of humanity can't be to leave their fellow things behind. Having witnessed all this, Kasher O'Neill says goodbye to Philip Vincent, the hereditary dictator, who turned out to be a more respectable person than expected. The old man warns Kasher not to shy away from power in his quest to free his people, but to embrace it and use it well. If he seizes control, the best thing is to rule so well that no one will remember his uncle in a few decades. The dictator has packed up the green ruby for Kasher's weapon, in part to thank him for his suggestion to synthesize food for the horse rather than spend fortunes on shipping alfalfa in for it. With that, Kasher is allowed to bow and leave safely, 
after one last glance at the lovely Genevieve. On the spaceship out, Kasher pays for a telepathic connection with the Pontopodon horse, which has been placed in a ship to orbit the planet peacefully. A snake man locates the connection and passes him the headset. For a while, Kasher simply enjoys the power and freedom of being a huge, running animal with memories of the Twelve Niles and the kind, cruel, powerful humans that Kasher is fighting for. Part 2, Chapter 1 Kasher O'Neill has come to the planet called Henrietta. Once it had a population of 600 million, but now there are just 40,000 people there. It is run by an administrator called Mr. Commissioner, who Kasher struggles to get a telepathic read on. He's at once suspicious, on edge, and eager to strike a deal that involves Kasher killing a woman in exchange for a power cruiser, and at the same time filled with fatigue and despair. After much pushing, Kasher finally gets an answer as to why there is an underperson, some kind of animal modified to look like a girl, that the administrator wants killed. It has for the past 80 years. Mr. Commissioner is a slightly intimidating man due to his extreme alcohol tolerance, drinking liquor that would kill another man as if it were cream. But he admits everything. He likes Kasher. He doesn't really need the cruiser, so Kasher can just have it. And he's the administrator of an all-but-abandoned planet. However, he still wants Kasher to kill the girl in the morning, if only as a favor to him. Over the course of 80 years, not one person he sent to assassinate her has ever returned. Chapter 2 The next morning, Kasher does nothing, and Mr. Commissioner is fast asleep after the liquor finally did him in. Out the window, a tornado rages while the elastic trees, quote, clung to the earth with a fury which matched the fury of the wind, unquote. A talkative robot butler tells him about the planet, how it's too expensive to adapt a world with 300 tornadoes a day, and Kasher asks about the girl Mr. Commissioner wants him to kill. He hears what he already knows, that she lives with the wealthiest man in the best house, but nothing new regarding the girl herself. Do you know anything about her? He asks when the robot says it can't tell him anything. Sir, it is not that, the robot replies. I know a great deal about her. Why can't you tell me about her then? Kasher wonders. I have been commanded not to, sir, the robot says. I am a true human being, Kasher says. I herewith countermand those orders. Tell me about her. The orders cannot be countermanded, sir, the robot says coldly. Why not? Kasher demands. Are they the administrators? No, sir. Whose then? Hers. Chapter 3 in his search for information, Kasher uses his diplomatic skills learned as a dictator's heir apparent and has dinner with the deputy administrator. The deputy is rather bitter about having to stay on this empty planet until he can get promoted. As such, his attention is more on minding one's own business than gossiping. He doesn't want to talk about Mr. Murray Madigan, who owns the house Beauregard and the undergirl in question. Nevertheless, Kasher manages to ask a good question and get an answer. Can under people give orders to robots? Of course, says the deputy administrator. That's one of the reasons we use under people. They have more initiative. They amplify our orders to robots on many occasions. Unfortunately, when Kasher asks if an underperson could give a robot orders that couldn't be countermanded, the deputy administrator no longer wants to talk about it, though the robot butler volunteers an answer. Apparently, on any other world, an underperson could not give such an order but they can on Henrietta. 
That's all it will say. That night, Kasher drinks with Mr. Commissioner again, but learns nothing new. He wakes up late in the evening after the robots have already carried the administrator off to bed. Chapter 4 In the morning, Mr. Commissioner is up and at him, ready to get Kasher over to the wealthy man's house to kill the underperson. A man of Indian descent named Gosigo will be his guide. Gosigo is a forgetty, a true person whose status is not much better than an underperson's, usually due to a history of crime. People like that are either given total amnesia or sent to the dread planet Sheol. After some questioning, Kasher learns that Gosigo has three sets of instructions. The administrator wants him to make sure Kasher stabs the undergirl. The deputy administrator wants him to just bring Kasher back from visiting the house. And someone else told him, quote, to close the door upon Kasher when he enters and to think of him no more in this life because Kasher will be very happy, unquote. Kasher dislikes everything that is happening, especially the fact that everyone on Henrietta apparently knows about the administrator's desire to send someone to kill the girl. Gasigo helps him to put on protective clothing while asking if Kasher finds his face familiar. Kasher doesn't, and Gasigo explains that he's endlessly curious about who he used to be. A lord? A dictator? A mad scientist? If he learns this information, there is a trigger in his brain that will cause him to pass out, but the amnesia prevents him from knowing whether or not that has ever happened. Thinking about it almost knocks Gasigo into an existential panic, but he controls himself, and they get on their way. Does it hurt to be a forgetty? Kasher asks. No, Gosigo says. It doesn't hurt. No more than you will. They go outside where the tank-slash-submarine vehicles are and find the administrator and several others waiting. Mr. Commissioner is looking pale, trembly, and manic, his behavior very odd and feverish. He wants to see the knife Kasher will use, though no one is supposed to have a weapon out in the ruler's presence and he doesn't get into the car despite saying it's time to go. Instead, he invites Kasher to join him in a one-for-the-road drink. Kasher doesn't partake, watching in horror as the man chugs a liter and a half of 160-proof liquor, then passes out in his servant's arms. The deputy administrator explains that he drinks like this before sending men to face off against the undergirl. Kasher should have left while he could, but now he has no choice but to go. Gosigo and Kasher strap themselves into the ugly vehicle and are off. Chapter 5 Gosigo drives under a brown and yellow-striped sky unlike anything Kasher has seen on his travels. Suddenly, the ground car is snatched by an air whale and they have to burn their way out of its grasp, landing in a swamp some ways from the road. During the laborious return to even ground, Gosigo explains that the imported fauna of Henrietta sometimes adapted to the tornado environment in terrifying ways. He also says that there are some wild men out here, but they shouldn't attack unless Gosigo and Kasher find themselves in a really bad situation. When they reach the road again, Gosigo has it screw itself to the ground as a tornado passes directly over. As they get a move on, the Forgetti shows Kasher a map, asking what he notices in the right-hand corner. Nothing is there, Kasher says, and Gosigo tells him that that is the house they are going toward, a place that never shows up on the weather radar maps on a planet that has inclement weather across its surface at all times. She will not permit it, Gosigo says. Kasher is shocked to hear this. It means this undergirl has weather machines that cost a fortune, despite the planet Henrietta being completely bankrupt. When he gets angry with Gosigo, 
The Frigidi reminds him that he is not an underperson or an animal, but a true man who does as he's told when he chooses to. Another tornado goes past, leaving destruction behind, as well as, quote, ghost-like shapes trailing after it in enormous, prancing leaps, unquote. According to Gasigo, they are wild men, little more than animals adapted to living on this stormy world. Chapter 6 The town of Ambiloxi, where Mr. Murray Madigan and his undergirl live, is one of perfect weather, boardwalks, old-fashioned houses, old folks, and even horses. Gasigo drives beyond, along a road lined with vegetation. Kasher watches the trees, marshes, and park-like areas go by. Then, Gosigo goes over what Kasher is to do. She knows, he says. She knows herself. She knows her master. She knows this planet. She knows me, and she knows something about you. Go ahead and kill her, since those are your orders. If she wants to die, that's not for you or me to decide. It's her business. If she does not want to die, you will not succeed. Stop asking questions. Just follow orders and remember that she will take care of you. Even you. They reach Beauregard, a huge mansion with white columns, and Kasher begins to sweat at the thought of committing a murder in just a few minutes. Chapter 7 The car stops, the door opens, and Kasher runs up to the house with a knife. Then the door opens and he sees the girl. The text says, He knew her. He had always known her. She was his sweetheart, come back out of his childhood. She was the sister he had never had. She was his own mother, when young. She was at the marvelous age, somewhere between 10 and 13, where the child, as the phrase goes, becomes an old child and not a raw grown-up. She was kind, calm, intelligent, expectant, quiet, inviting, unafraid. She felt like someone he had never left behind, yet at the same moment he knew he had never seen her before. The girl introduces herself as Truth, spelled T-apostrophe-Ruth, and invites Kasher to stab her. But after several attempts to raise the knife, he cannot, and it falls from his hand. He has killed men in duels before, but he can't do this. I cannot do it, he says. What have you done to me? I have done nothing to you, she says. You do not wish to kill a child, and I look to you like a child. Besides, I think you love me. If this is so, it must be very uncomfortable for you. Who are you that you should do this to me? Kasher asks again. I am me, she says with childlike simplicity. I am the housekeeper of this house. It seems that I must almost be the ruler of this planet as well. Then she becomes more serious. Man, she says. Can't you see it, man? I am an animal, a turtle. I am incapable of disobeying the word of man. When I was little, I was trained, and I was given orders. I shall carry out those orders as long as I live. When I look at you, I feel strange. You look as though you loved me already, but you do not know what to do. The girl steps over the fallen knife and has a conversation with Gosigo. The Forgetty will return to the administrator with a story about her murder, and the cycle will repeat itself. Mr. Commissioner will never come here, only send more people to kill her. It occurs to Gosigo that he's probably done this over and over again, and is made into a new Forgetty every time, but to have that confirmed is to pass out, so he leaves cheerfully. Truth returns her attention to Kasher, a little sadly. He has been observing her, noting how incredibly undeveloped and childlike she really is dressed in a simple blue shift. Who is this child who acts like an empress, he thinks. I suppose, since I am just an animal, 
that I should not call it a murder when somebody tries to kill me. But I resist, of course, she says. I do not care about me, but I have orders, strong orders, to keep my master and his house safe from harm. Kasher is shocked to learn that Truth is 906 years old, a turtle changed into human form and whose life expectancy of 300 is now 90,000. When Kasher is old and gray, she will still be opening the drapes to let the sunlight in. She takes him into the house, making it clear that he is not her prisoner, but his own, since there is no way for him to go anywhere without a tank-like ground car to travel through the storm. He chose to come here. The mystery deepens as a human servant serves them tea and coffee. It would be illegal for an underperson to be served in this way on another planet, but on Henrietta, truth is law and order itself. The administrator was left here by the instrumentality to maintain a sense of control, nothing more. She is left alone, and she takes care of the people sent to kill her. The servant from earlier is a forgetty who was once sent as an assassin and now makes wages as a maid. Even more shocking than Truth's age is the fact that she also has the memories of her master Madigan's late wife transcribed onto her brain, also illegal. Kasher gazes at her in wonder, a little girl with the mind of a wise man and the power of a god, and they both conclude that Henrietta is an odd place. Everyone is what they are. Even Gosigo was once a king, now banished to existence here. And Truth recognizes that Kasher is a killer seeking justification for the revenge he wants on his home planet. And I have work for you, Truth says, something much worse than killing. Eunice, the human servant, returns and is pleased to hear Kasher is a killer already, as so many people who are sent to kill Truth are distraught by what they almost did and require a lot of healing before they can work any job. Truth admits that she could use her full power to make Kasher do this for her, but she won't. It must be his choice. While it would be a shame if he'd killed her and left her master alone, with as much life as she has left to live, she doesn't much care about herself, simply pleased that he might be able to do this other task for her. In short, there is an incurable homicidal maniac in the house who is covered by certain laws that don't allow anyone there to expel him. So, they need Kasher to do it. Chapter 8 Truth has Kasher admire the view out the window. There are tornadoes in the distance, stopped by the weather machines, and a family of wind people stealing apples from the orchard. The attempts to change this wild place had failed, the imported animals all becoming wind-borne like killer whales and jellyfish. Now just a handful of humans remain in the ruins, the wealthiest of those being Truth's master Murray Madigan, who is very old and is only conscious a few hours every day. The instrumentality left him alone to his odd way of life with his turtle girl. Out of necessity, Kasher begins to see Truth not as a potential victim, but as a tool. He's learned that when all plans fail, he can fall back on his objective to survive and make his life mean something to the people of his homeworld Miser. What was this strange house he'd found himself in? To prepare Kasher for the fight ahead, Truth takes a chain from around her neck and reveals the crucifix she's been wearing. He's immediately in hysterics, saying that she's doomed him with that. Now others will peep into his mind and see that image there, and they'll probably wipe his mind or prevent him from traveling as all religious fanatics are. Why couldn't she have just left him to his vague knowledge of the sign of the fish? Truth begs him to calm down, assuring him that she'll wipe his mind of all memory of the crucifix before he leaves Henrietta. Still, it bothers him. It is yet another strange thing in this house, another expensive illegal thing. 
She also reminds him of the story of Hechizera of Gonfalon, a play about a space witch who conjured fleets through hypnosis. According to truth, Madigan's dead wife was that very witch, whose memories are now imprinted on the turtle girl's mind. Having had enough of this, Kasher starts to leave. Oh no you don't, she says. Chapter 9 The girl stands in Kasher's way, immovable as steel, and he realizes it's a hypnotic projection, stronger than he's ever known. Truth demonstrates more of her vast powers, causing his dagger to float into the air, making the world go black, stunning him with sensory illusions, forcing him to relive memories that she manipulates. He again experiences that terrible day when Colonel Wetter took control of the palace of Kahir back on planet Mizer, and the floors ran with the blood of the overthrown dictator's companions, soaking the carpet and staining set dinner tables. Babies and elders were butchered in the coup to remove Kasher's uncle from the throne. And worst of all, Kasher had shook Wetter's hand after it was all over. Truth releases Kasher from his torment, and he submits to her in the hopes that one day she'll let him go and remove the religious picture from his mind. Then, with a swinging watch, Truth wipes the experience away. Disoriented, feeling as though he fought with someone, Kasher tries to piece things back together. He once again comes to terms with the strangeness of Truth, who seems to be a space witch reborn. No, I am not reborn, she says. I am a turtle child, an underperson with a very long life, and I have been imprinted with the personality of my master's wife. Although Truth seems to care for him somehow as well, she distances herself from that feeling and tells him that he is the only person who can perform the task she requires. And Kasher, hardly able to remember anything from the moment Gasigo left him here till now, can only agree in bemusement. Is he in love with her? Is she like a sister? What is that chain she wears hidden around her neck? All he can cling to is the thought that he is a fighter and must therefore fight. Truth warns him that the man he is after cannot be killed, for he is an immortal and is protected by old North Australia laws, where the master of the house also hails from. The maniac must be scared away. Unfortunately, the maniac in question is John Joytree, a famous pilot who pioneered the edges of space. In his madness, he would be capable of taking control of the enormous buried ship that all habitable land on Henrietta is built upon. He might fly it into space, or hover above the planet's surface until everything crumbled. Although Truth is strong enough to stop John Joytree, he spends his time in the control room, a space that pilots spend years training to enter. Despite her powers, Truth is but a turtle in human form, and her instinct is to be a coward. She cannot enter the control room, and no robot can hope to defeat a genius like John Joytree. For a hundred years, she has desperately hoped he would not take off and destroy her master in the process. She begs and pleads until he lets her lead him to the door, then she pushes him inside. And all he can think upon entering is, this room is hell. Chapter 10 John Joytree and Kasher O'Neill exchange pleasantries inside the hellish control room of a miles-long ship. The old pilot doesn't seem insane, and he knows exactly what Kasher is doing here. And although Kasher wants to run, he is more afraid of Truth, the turtle girl, at this point, than he is of John Joytree, the pilot. That doesn't mean he knows what to do, even when John Joytree suggests various types of duels they could partake in. Boxing, swords, spaceships... Already badly frightened, Kasher is startled when Madigan, the master of the house, comes to join them. He says, You find me waking. You find him sane. Watch out. 
Madigan makes an old man's dash for the controls and makes it because Kasher trips John Joytree, who has a knife. Suddenly, Kasher is thrown back by an unseen force and witnesses a hypnotic projection of himself attacking the pilot, who then stabs and kills that projection. Inspired, Kasher makes his own projection wearing iron gloves. Now there are three of him in the terrible room for John Joytree to contend with. The image Kasher says, John Joytree, I do not bring you death, I bring you blood. My iron hands will pulp your eyes, blind sockets will stare in your face. My iron hands will split your teeth and break your jaw a thousand times, so that no doctor, no machine will ever fix you. My iron hands will crush your arms, turn your hands into living rags. My iron hands will break your legs. Look at that blood, John Joytree. There will be a lot more blood. You have killed me once. See that young man on the floor. John Joytree begins to get frightened at the sight of one dying man and two shouting duplicates. Blood you shall have, blood and ruin, but we will not kill you. You will live in ruin, blind, emasculated, armless, legless. You will be fed through tubes. You cannot die, and you will weep for death, but no one will hear you. Kasher remembers the terrible things he saw on his home planet. Dead men grasping possessions, women bleeding out at the neck, children's stomachs split open, and projects those images into John Joytree's mind. This makes it clear to him that Kasher is a bad, dangerous man. Will you let me go if I never enter this room again? The pilot asks. And Kasher confirms. But who are you going to use for your dreams of blood if you don't use me? I don't know, Kasher says. I follow my fate. John Joytree leaves, taking the hellish atmosphere with him. And Madigan thanks Kasher for doing this task. Kasher may ask the girl, my girl, he emphasizes, for any reward he likes, as she handles everything while he sleeps. The one thing Kasher cannot have is truth herself. Chapter 11 Two days later, Truth takes Kasher to visit Master Madigan. He sleeps in an enormous room filled with fancy antique furniture and scenes of the planet Henrietta at its prime as a resort location. At the center is a clean surgical table surrounded with medical machines with Madigan lying naked on top, saving up for his next few waking hours. In the walls are four odd alcoves, a funeral parlor, a ship cockpit with pilot's chair, a bedroom, and a fortress of survival supplies. Apparently, he likes to fall asleep in those rooms. Then Truth moves him to the surgical table with equipment. Kasher is the first person besides Truth who's been allowed in here, and the turtle girl explains he is one of the few who gets to live for 40 to 60,000 years, waking up a couple times a month to see how things are. She was made to be his companion, a turtle girl treated with strewn to live even longer to look after him and imprinted to love him as a god. She is more reliable than any machine, more beloved than any wife, sweetheart, or mother. Truth does a routine physical checkup while Kasher watches, helping her turn the sleeping man over as she performs a deep muscle massage. Afterward, quote, she stood facing him. There was a faint glow in her cheeks from the violent exercise in which she had been indulging, but she still looked both the child and the lady. The child irrevocably remote hidden in her own wisdom from the muddled world of adults, and the lady, mistress in her own house, her own estates, her own planet, serving her master with almost immortal love and zeal." Unquote. Despite having felt so drawn to truth before, Kasher is becoming a bit unnerved by the unconditional devotion she has to Madigan. "'He is my father, my husband, my baby son, my master, my owner,' she says. 
with no regard for what happens to her after his death, caring only that here and now she gets to be the only one who can look after his estate and have the access codes to his room. Annoyed, Kasher asks her what the point is, and she says, Love. Love is the only end of things, love on the one side and death on the other. She goes on to say that love is a much better weapon than any laser or cruiser ship Kasher could get his hands on. Out in the parlor, John Joytree has shown up again, but is scared away by the sight of Kasher O'Neill, the man of blood. Chapter 12 Truth pulls out a communicator so sophisticated it makes Kasher realize how much money Madigan truly has. Apparently, he owns the four planets where the old Henrietta residence went after the planet was all but abandoned to the tornadoes. It was a deal thought up and managed by Truth herself, while her master was asleep. She uses the communicator to get information about how the wars on Kasher's home planet Misery are going. Then Truth asks Kasher to answer the door, but not let anyone in, and he goes to find Gosigo with the administrator there. He turns them away, Gosigo happily taking his master back to the car. Kasher's feelings for Truth are still very confusing. Quote, he wanted to pick her up, to crush her to his chest, to rain his kisses on her face, unquote. But he does none of those things, for she is the true mistress of Henrietta, though she sees herself only as a belonging of Madigan's. She understands and says it is about time they go their separate destinies on their own planet. He must take with him the most powerful weapon she can give him. Herself. Now, as mentioned before, Kasher can't actually take truth with him, but she can imprint her mind on his brain, giving him the full power of the space witch she is herself imprinted with, as well as the techniques and knowledge she has gathered in over 900 years of life. In this moment, Kasher truly understands the mind-boggling nature of what she is. Truth says, You will never lie with a woman without realizing that you know more about her than she does. You will be a seeing man among blind multitudes, a hearing person in the world of the deaf. I don't know how much fun romantic love is going to be for you after this. More frightened than charmed, Kasher agrees. He will pay any price to free his people, even give up a part of his humanity. Though he doesn't want her to, Truth also plans to tell him about the sign of the fish, then have his mind scrambled so it can't be read for a couple of years, hiding his religious knowledge from the instrumentality. The turtle girl allows him to give her a kiss, which he does as one might a painting, and she takes him to go shooting while the technicians get ready. Chapter 13 In a huge room of elegance and pool tables fit to entertain a thousand guests, Truth shows Kasher the gun cabinet filled with real old earth rifles. She takes gentle control of his mind, giving him a taste of the huge power she's going to give him, and teaches him through that control. The guard robot is asked to fetch a teaching helmet for extra safety. Truth wants to know why Kasher is so gloomy about receiving her aid, and he summarizes the utterly crazy time he's had on Henrietta, going from would-be assassin to vessel for psychic powers, illegal religion, and hypnosis that will hopefully be the answer to his quest that has lasted many years. And all that under the power of a single turtle person. She tells Kasher that in just a week he will have succeeded in all his goals, Though he'll never be able to remember his experiences on Henrietta well enough to come back here, he will carry snippets of these memories with him. Meanwhile, Truth will continue with her 89,000 years of life, taking care of her master. 
Once upon a time, she was a little girl who didn't remember being a turtle, who was put into a machine alongside a dying woman, and who walked out of that room with a lifetime of skills and learning inside her head. She cried herself to sleep 900 years ago when her childhood ended and she became the mistress of a planet. There is no life for her but this one, no husband or family or anyone who can grow old with her. She will spend her years making sure her master lives longer than any human ever has. I'm going to do what I was made for, Kasher, she says, and you're going to go back to Mizzer and make it free, whether you like it or not. The robot returns with the teaching helmet, and Kasher is initiated into a world of gun knowledge. He and Truth go hunting for wind people children, using special devices that simply knock them out, and bring back six little ones who don't look that much different from other humans under the dirt of a life unwashed. After giving them a euphoric drug to prevent panic, Truth has a doctor underperson wake them up while the entire household watches in the living room. She asks them if they know where they are, and they say that they are in the dead place with no wind. She also asks them what they want, which is a feast of raw duck. What Truth plans to give them is a set of vaccinations as well as that feast, then release them back into the wilds. Turning to Kasher, she asks him what else they need. This is another test of some sort. People are always trying to make sure that Kasher will do the right thing, that he's worthy of whatever gifts they give him. He determines that they don't need a life here in a house, nor a great knowledge of the universe, like the planets he's visited. Instead, they should have a piece of his personality, his determination and his desire to reach what he wants. For Kasher, he desires a return home more than revenge, but these children will find their own wants. Kasher is sat down in a chair, and the children are fitted with helmets as the transfer is initiated. He looks at Truth, the turtle girl, and wonders if he will ever know anyone like her again. She understands what he's thinking, and tells him that she knows he wants to return home so badly that when they put him through Space 3 transport, he should end up right back at the 7th Nile he grew up beside. She bids him farewell, with a kiss, and Kasher accepts the way things are. The last thing he sees before everything turns to velvety darkness is old man Madigan come to see him one last time. Chapter 14 Kasher wakes up naked on the sands of the Seventh Nile, home on planet Mizzer. He remembers something of Madigan and Truth, something of the sign of the fish scattered throughout his mind, and something of the space witch imprinted upon him. Some rescue workers are lifting him onto a litter and putting him into a medical vehicle. Terrible, nightmarish memories of Space 3 come back to Kasher, and in that moment he fades from consciousness, losing the name of that incredible girl forever. Chapter 15 Badly burned after landing on the Seventh Nile among skirmishing troops, Kasher finds himself in a hospital being questioned by the tyrant Colonel Wetter's men. He can feel his new powers working, quote, reaching for their minds with a kind of fingertip which he did not know he had, unquote. He can tell where their minds are vulnerable. It sparks snippets of dreamlike memory from his scrambled time on another world, but it's all fading away. Finding just the right pleading tone, luring them in with his injured weakness, Kasher touches the men's hands and worms his way into their brains. Quote, Suddenly he felt their minds glowing in his as brightly as if he had swallowed their gleaming, thinking brains at a single gulp. Unquote. They now believe that Kasher O'Neill, nephew of the last dictator, is dead in a room down the hall, and they mixed him up with this living man called Bindowd. O'Neill will be buried quietly with honor as someone who once aided Wedder the tyrant. The men leave, and for a moment Kasher, now known as Bindowd, remembers something from a planet that is not Mizzer, 
and the passing memory of it almost brings him to tears of something lost. Part 3 Casher O'Neill has one thing on his mind, the freedom of Mizor, of the city of Cahir, of the Twelve Niles. Truth gave him the tools to do so, and he now strides through the front gates towards the revenge he has thirsted for. Chapter 1 Dressed as the military medic named Bindoud, Kasher passes through the streets of his hometown, past people who do not know that history is walking by. What he knows is that he's being followed by a sukhasaka, a search thing, a device hidden inside a small boy and utilized by the police, compelling the child, or whatever creature it was latched to, to follow its target. Rather than use his mind powers to kill the boy, and perhaps the machine, Kasher simply tells it he is going to the palace, and it follows. Quote, He was not afraid of guns, he could stop them. He was not afraid of poison, he could resist it. He was not afraid of hypnotism, he could take it in and spit it back. He was not afraid of fear, he had been on Henrietta. He had come home through space three, there was nothing left to fear. Unquote. At the doors of the thousand-year-old palace, Kasher introduces himself as Bindoud, a medic in Colonel Wetter's service, bringing a sick boy inside so that he might heal the child as a display of his skills. Despite this lie, walking inside feels like coming home to familiar corridors and smells. It feels strange to come to the point that Kasher's whole life has been building toward. Until recently, he had thought it would take an army of weapons to reach Colonel Wetter's office, possibly de- the destruction of the whole city. But now he is powerful enough in a subtler way and can walk right in. Colonel Wetter meets him and they shake hands, thus cementing the tyrant's fate. Before his mind is enveloped, Wetter asks, Who are you? And Kasher merely says, Your friend. Kasher adjusts the functions of Wetter's brain, permanently turning the tyrant into something a little less volatile. It's an imperceptible change that even Wetter doesn't notice, nor does the Sukhasaha. In keeping with the charade, Kasher heals the boy, whose mind has been overrun by the machine for a long while. Flushing the Sukhasaha out, then safely says his farewell, turns his back, and leaves. Colonel Wetter will never kill anyone ever again. And the Republic of the Twelve Niles is now free under the same leader who had been the Man of Blood. I am a sword which has been put into its scabbard, Kasher says. I am a pistol with the cartridges dropped out. I am a wire point with no battery behind it. I am a man, but I am very empty. Kasher gives the boy who had been machine-controlled a wealth of language and artful thought, then leaves him to find out who he is. Chapter 2 With nothing else to do, Kasher goes home to his mother, Treehip, the sister of the last dictator. She is a woman of tradition whose home is filled with antiques and family pictures, and she's not particularly pleased to see him after all these years. Trehep is still angry that he betrayed her brother, disgraced the family, and went off across the universe. In her opinion, Kasher is worse than Wetter, since he was an insider and a betrayer who opened the door, not just an outsider breaking in. Kasher isn't asking for her forgiveness. He's just here to wish her well now that Miser should be a more comfortable planet from now on. I suppose you know your wife's dead, Trehep says. I had heard that, Kasher says. I hope she died instantly in an accident and without pain. Of course it was an accident, Trehep replies. How else do people die these days? She and her husband tried out one of those new boats and it overturned. I'm sorry, Kasher says. I wasn't there. As Kasher tries to take his leave, Trehep asks if he's going to see his daughter. But Kasher was not aware he had one. They say their goodbyes, 
Casher kissing her hand, and he finds that her mind is more stubborn than any he's seen so far. She was, quote, a person set in life, immobile, determined, rigid even for a man with healing arts who could destroy a fleet with his thoughts or who could bring an idiot to normality by mere command. He could see that this was a case beyond his powers, unquote. Chapter 3 Kasher goes to visit the daughter who lives with her husband, Ali Ali. Quote, he could see the cast of his own bones in the shape of her face, could see the length of his own fingers repeated in her hands, unquote. However, she does not wish to know him or for her children to meet him after a life tormented by his shadow. I may be your daughter, but I can't help that, she says. Leaving her be, Kasher says his goodbye and walks back through the streets, contemplating what he should do now. He remembers everything now, including the things Truth scrambled. And what comes to him is that old, strong religion and the crucifix he was shown. It occurs to him that he has always been a vessel for a mission, not truly himself. So, he gets a ride to the Ninth Nile. Chapter 4 Riding in a public flying machine, Kasher looks down on the Egypt-style world below with pyramids and white sands. They come to the Ninth Nile, which passes through a shiny black volcanic landscape a strip of silver flanked by green against the darkness. He's dropped off, and it's strange to be alone without his convictions to keep him moving, to keep him confident. I've been waiting for you, Kasher, a woman's voice says. Chapter 5 The woman is Dalma, the dog woman dishwasher servant from Pontopodon, the gem planet. Kasher is shocked to see her, not only because she is here on Mizzer, but because she knew to meet him here. Dalma says she was sent here by a master whose name she won't speak, a master of underpeople who operates from Earth. She knew Kasher would come here to the Ninth Nile, because it is the road all searchers take. Do you mean that you know the road to the Holy of Unholies, the Thirteenth Nile? Kasher asks in shock. They enter one of the simple frontier houses here in the grassy areas along the river. She tells him they will stay here while he learns to relax, to sleep, to swim, without the burden of his mission. Afterward, they will take the trip. So, Kasher stays here, and the old dog woman teaches him to simply play. Though he sometimes tries to hypnotize her, he can't get past her mental defenses, and she finds it amusing. They play dice and cards, or go swimming, and the days spent doing nothing feel good. Kasher seems to meet himself again. After ten days of blissful nothing, Kasher asks when they will leave. I've been waiting for that question, and we're ready now, Dalma says. Let's go. She opens a shed to reveal a very old ornithopter and expertly pilots it over amazing lands to a colorful place called the City of Hopeless Hope. Chapter 6 The two of them walk through the busy streets of incense, talismans, and religion being practiced freely. Kasher is surprised that a place like this exists on a civilized world, and Dalma says that, even if they don't want to, there are always people fascinated about death and fulfillment and being right and wrong. She is taking him to see the Dwins, the perfect ones, who oppose everything she and Kasher stand for, for he is important to more worlds than just Miser. Chapter 7 Dressed in uniform, Kasher is stopped by a police official as they cross the bridge to their destination. Dalma says she and Kasher are going to the source of the 13th Nile, and the policeman says, Nobody goes there. But he is startled when Kasher pulls out his all-world pass from the instrumentality. He changes his tone, 
saying the scholars from the Hall of Learning will want to meet with someone important enough to carry such a thing. Dalma is quiet as they are transported, unsettled by the clean, perfect, overly polite world they have entered. They are brought to a large building with an archway, which they enter reluctantly. Quote, Dalma was reluctant because she had some sense of what this place was, a special dwelling for quiet doom and arrogant finality. Kasher was reluctant because he could feel that in every bone of her body she resented this place, and he resented it too, unquote. Ten men rise to meet them, and they already know who Kasher O'Neill is and what he has done for the planet, though Wetter's tyranny didn't reach this far. They know Dalma too, though women are never allowed here, and she is the only underperson present. She will be permitted as Kasher's guest. They sit down to a grand meal and converse until Kasher finally asks, I do not seem to have heard of you, Juins. Who are you? We are the perfect ones, the oldest says. We have all the answers. There is nothing else left to find. How do you get here? Kasher wonders. We are selected from many worlds. Where are your families? We don't bring them here with us. How do you keep out intruders? If they are good, they wish to stay. If they are not good, we destroy them. Kasher wants to know what they have decided about him and they tell him not to force their decision. Perfect he may be, but Kasher is almost more than human. Quote, the magic of ancient battles coming to strike among us. Unquote. What they think they will do is not accept him nor destroy him, but hurry him on his way out of the city they call Jwinsjo. They will send him along to the dangers of Mortival, the source of the 13th Nile. Chapter 9 Kasher and Dalma are delivered to Mortival in an unmanned cart that returns after taking them along an incredible journey of mountain gorges to the illegal and forgotten 13th Nile. With Dalma staying close, they walk up to the Great Arch and are both greeted and warned by the voice of Gunung Banga, quote, The power of this planet which keeps everyone in this planet and which assures the order which persists among the stars and promises that the dead shall not walk among the men, unquote. To mask their passage, Kasher reaches into his huge mental reserves to find the memories of Truth, the 900-year-old turtle girl. He projects knowledge of many people, creating the illusion of a multitude of people passing through the archway and confusing Gunung Banga, which is really a machine, not a spirit. Programmed for individuals, it can do nothing but let them pass, much to Dalma's astonishment. They come to a riverside and get into one of the skiff boats left along the beach. They cross the gentle water to a place with trees and buildings. Chapter 9 Dalma recognizes where they are as the Kermes d'Orgoyle, a dangerous place of happiness, but nothing of the sign of the fish. It is a place of indulgent perfection and promenades. Someone named Howard is surprised to see someone in uniform and an underperson, so he greets them, knowing they can't be as they appear, and invites them to live in the Singing Swans Hotel for as long as they like. Howard is from Old Earth and came here after searching many places of hardship and evil religion. This is a place only of good, useful things. He's pleased to host Kasher O'Neill, Changer and Lord of Miser. Howard doesn't know why they want directions to anywhere when they have come to the place where everyone wants to be, but Kasher doesn't want to argue about it. He and Dalma go to their rooms to clean up and sleep. The next day, they let Howard show them around. There is a spacecraft for trips to Earth, there are some 30,000 happy people. There are dancers and musicians. Howard points out one dancer as Salalta, a lady once of the instrumentality, 
and says he has just had a vision of her and Kasher going to the deep, dry lake of the damned Irene, where they will die and their bones will turn to dust. Dalma tells Kasher that this place Howard speaks of is where they need to go, to the Shrine of Shrines. So, Kasher allows Howard to introduce him to Salalta. You have danced your last dance, madam, he says. At least for the time. You and I are going to a place that this man knows about, and he says that we are going to die there, and our bones will be blown with the wind. She is a powerful woman, physically and mentally, and they engage in psychic battle until the sheer vastness of his experience, both his own and that imprinted upon him, outdoes her. This is the call of the first forbidden one, and the second forbidden one, and the third forbidden one, Kasher tells her. This is the symbol of the sign of the fish. For this you are going to leave this town, and you are going with me, and it may be that you and I shall become lovers. Dalma the dog woman tells Kasher she will be staying here. Meanwhile, quote, Salalta walked beside Kasher like a wild animal which had never been captured before, unquote. Howard warns that Kasher and Salalta will likely never want to come back, though they will be mere steps from town. And Kasher replies that he must go because he is searching for something to remove the knowledge from him and return to his humanity. And Salalta will follow him away from happiness to see what incredible things he will do. Chapter 10 The couple hike two kilometers out of the moist valley and into a desert full of skeletons. They become heavy with the weight of every month of their lives, tempted to lie down and rest like the others did before them. It takes all the memories of lives Kasher has at his disposal to get them through those last ten steps to reach the quell of the thirteenth Nile. Chapter 11 There is nothing there but fruit trees and grains, and Kasher is confused. Salalta, on the other hand, understands completely. Nothing is victory, she says. Nothing is arrival. Nowhere is getting there. We're Adam and Eve, in a way. It's not up to us to be given a god or to be given a faith. The answer Kasher has been searching for is here, by not being an answer at all, but mere freedom to form this lovely place, to go back to the happy city when they wish company, to find themselves as they can nowhere else. And Salalta looks forward to them having each other. He appreciates fully now how beautiful Salalta is, what sorts of power over humanity's destiny she must have held as a lady of the instrumentality before throwing it all away. How did Howard know to pair them up? Was it that same force that sent Dalma the dogwoman? Whatever the case, Kasher and Salalta are a partnership now, and they have the Quell, the place where the 13th Nile flows from some nearby rocks. Mysteriously, Salalta suggests that the instrumentality might know something of what Kasher has done, and there might be a reason she was given to him, perhaps as a reward for what he has done for everyone without warfare. Letting go of that transient life of planet hopping, Kasher takes his destined woman into his arms. Part 4. Chapter 1. Three unusual beings travel through space towards the sun, Limshoten 15, where on its third planet there resides some sort of life that responds to the radio signal, man, with the counter signal, eat, eat, man, good to eat, cackle, gabble. The three beings were once humans, but are now machines. Folly, a beautiful woman, now a small spaceship. Finsternis, a person, now a black cube and Sam, a metal giant of destruction. Once the threat is assessed, Sam will go to the surface to stomp around and strike fear into the hearts of those who would eat mankind. If that fails, Finsternis will black out the sun. Folly is there to make adjustments so they can win, or cause them to all self-destruct if they fail. 
They are not allowed to return to Earth. They are too dangerous now. Didn't they volunteer for this? When their mission is finished, they can live out their lives in space far away. Chapter 2 Folly once tried to end her life, only to be brought back at the last second, so she volunteered for adventure. But she is bitter that once she was beautiful, and now she is a ship. She enjoys looking at Sam's giant metal hands. Folly and Sam share a societal sort of friendship out here in the depths of space, years away from what had been home. Finsternis does not participate. His communications brief, just another object traveling with them. The three of them had been dropped off at a safe distance, left to finish the journey on their own. The ship and the giant discuss how they got here, and Folly admits she doesn't know if there's still a beautiful female body in the depths of herself, hooked up to all the ship's sensors. What about Sam? That's not a real name. Folly chose hers based on her mistakes, but Sam, S-A-M-M, stands for Superordinated Alien Measuring and Mastery Device. Neither tells the other what their human name was, and Sam lived a good life that ended in disappointment, not needed by anyone, and he chose to volunteer rather than tread the same path that Folly once did. What would they do if they were human again? Folly would take baths and wear outrageous lipstick without caring what anyone thought, and Sam would swim. Folly encourages him, with his giant metal body, to pretend he's swimming out here in space as they rocket through the universe, and he does but they are silenced by Finsternis. Stop it. Stop moving right now, he commands. I attack. Chapter 3 The three metal beings are still on their way to the third planet of Linshoten 5, but there is something out here that they have encountered that Finsternis senses first. A rip in space leaks their attacker like sloshing water, folds of life, flames of wildfire. The black cube that is Finsternis is velvety dark, blacker than black, and draws the unformed bright life into it, absorbing it entirely. With an air of self-gratification and superiority, Finsternis informs them he was designed to absorb whole suns as necessary. Neither Folly nor Sam could ever do something like this. Folly says that may be true, but she's still capable of repairing him, and Finsternis returns to sulky silence. The three of them have 79 years left on their voyage though it could feel like an afternoon or a thousand lifetimes to them. Sam asks how Earth discovered the planet they're headed towards, and Folly explains that two powerful telepaths on Mizzer found it doing psionic astronomy. Then Sam goes back to swimming, and Folly watches. Here the text features a flashback to ex-dictator Kasher O'Neill and ex-lady Salalta enjoying each other's company, using each other's telepathic powers to leap up off of the planet Mizzer into space, farther than anyone has projected before, and that is how they discovered the terrifying signal from the third planet of Linshoten 5. Chapter 4 Some years later, Kasher and Salalta reached out to the three human objects to see how they were doing. They were pleased to sense that Folly and Sam both had lovely human bodies tucked away inside their metal shells to return their minds to one day, but shiver with fear as they contemplate who lies inside the sun-killer black cube. Is it a man or a woman, young or old? All they know is that it may be insane. Salalta felt more this time than Kasher did, lifted by his powerful mind off of Mizzer to see far beyond. She suspects that a truly psychotic person was placed inside the black cube to make sure the mission succeeded in snuffing out mankind's potential enemy. Unable to do anything about it, she and Kasher sleep. Chapter 5 all three weapons on their way to Linshoten 15 are themselves telepathic, 
and a few years later, Folly begins to sense things about their destination. It is a world of smells, and the telepaths there are getting frantic with excitement over the three approaching minds, especially those who remember man from some unknown past. She and Sam hold on to the hope of being in their bodies again, of meeting each other, for they love one another despite meeting as a metal giant and a ship small enough for him to hold like a cigar. For now they can only change the subject, musing about the fact that they are still within their own galaxy. Sam mentions that beyond their galaxy, where strange things happen like space dragon attacks, there are even stranger things like two-headed elephants weeping forever in the intergalactic void. These are discoveries made by the great Captain John Joytree. Sam studied his work, and Folly idolized him, though she supposes he must be dead. John Joytree is not dead, Finsternis the Cube says. He's creeping around a monstrous place on an abandoned planet, and he is immortal and insane. This statement is shocking, not only for its content, but for the fact Finsternis hasn't spoken in many years, though he doesn't say anything more. Not long after, the three weapons land on the third planet from Linshoten 15, and a battle of fire, blood, and screams ensues that boils lakes and scorches valleys. While Finsternis's cube sits motionless on a mountaintop, Folly learns everything about the planet and sends Sam about to destroy it all with his bare hands. Finally, an old telepath reaches out to make peace. Apparently, the people here are Earthborn, the remnants of a spaceship loaded with chickens thrown through space and time to become a confused race of underpeople whose concept of humanity was warped, confusing the meaning behind eat and eaten. With that misunderstanding cleared, the war ends. Then the giant and the ship are led back to the cube, where they go through the process of releasing their little human bodies from their metal prisons, calling Sam, Alan, Folly, Ellen, and Finsternis, Alma. The two lovers are tasked with looking after the young girl who was once the cube and is now a forgetty. The message is signed by the instrumentality in place in case they won the war. The spaceship is now a house for them here amongst the singing chicken people. Chapter 6 Ten years later, there are 35 human children running around outside a great stone and wood house. The technology of the chicken planet is much improved, and Alan is now father to a household of children born and grown thanks to love as well as egg sperm banks found in the ship. These children are raised with the help of chicken person nurses, and they tell time based on the metal giant that has become a sundial. The three Earth humans live as a sort of thruple, Ellen and Alma wives to Alan. Ellen had to teach Alma almost everything due to the nature of forgetties, and now they are very close. All three marvel at what they were ten years ago, what they had been back on Earth, how they had to travel to the ends of the world to find happiness. The End Now that we've finished the story without spoilers, let's take a quick look at the introduction written by John J. Pierce in 1978, more than ten years after the initial publication, as well as Cordwainer Smith's passing. Meet Kasher O'Neill, adventurer, pilgrim, mystic, and a street in downtown Cairo? Paul Myron Anthony Linneberger, 1913-1966, who, you must know by now, was secretly Cordwainer Smith until shortly before his death, delighted in decorating his stories with cryptic puns, references, and allusions, so many that they haven't all been sorted out even yet. Kasher El-Nil is a street in downtown Cairo. And if you know that the people who live there call their country Misir, not Egypt, you won't have any trouble interpreting Misir. 
Karaf, Weter, and Gibna are, of course, anagrams on the names of the Egyptian king and the two colonels who overthrew him. And why, given all this, was Kasser el Nil transformed into Kasher O'Neill? Smith wanted to convey the idea of an adventurer, and an Irish name seemed to fit. Readers can be forgiven if they fail to realize why Kasher finds it so appropriate for the planet Pontopadon to have a capital named Anderson. Henrik Pontopadon was a Danish author, and Anderson a hero of his soil, a commodity lacking on the gem planet. Or that the stormy world of Henrietta was largely inspired by Smith's memory of a childhood experience with a hurricane in Biloxi, Mississippi. Or that he expressed his concern with the violence of the 1960s by creating passages in which the first letters of each sentence spell out Kennedy shot and Oswald shot too. See pages 69 and 74. Such esoterica, fortunately, are not essential to the enjoyment of Quest of the Three Worlds. For the story of Kasher O'Neill, like nearly all of Smith's science fiction, is part of the vast epic of the instrumentality of mankind that has been fascinating readers for more than 20 years. Most of that epic has already been collected in Norstrilia and The Best of Cordwainer Smith, and the present volume. The remaining stories completed by Paul Linnebarger during his lifetime will be included in a fourth volume, appropriately titled The Instrumentality of Mankind. There may be more to come. Linnebarger's widow Genevieve, who collaborated with him on several stories, has written others based on uncompleted manuscripts or ideas they had discussed, and Linnebarger left tape-recorded notes for still other stories. Be that as it may, the Kasher O'Neill stories come at the end of the cycle of tales and legends that had been completed at the time of Linnebarger's death. It is the second century of the rediscovery of man, a vast undertaking by the lords of the instrumentality and their covert allies among the underpeople to undo, or at least partly, the suffocating utopia to which the lords themselves had subjected mankind for millennia. Since the instrumentality, at this time, is in the business of recreating cultures of the ancient world as part of its program to restore freedom and diversity to human existence, Cordwainer Smith had a perfect science fictional justification for Miser, Karaf, Wetter, Gibna, and all. But he could also create worlds like none ever seen. Pontopadon, where gems are worthless and earth is precious. Henrietta, with its air whales and wind people. Smith's worlds are bizarre, but they work. As always, there are allusions to figures and incidents from ages past. Go Captain Magna Taliano, legendary hero of The Burning of the Brain, and the Kaskaskia Effect, a mind-destroying weapon of Earth's Dark Age. There are allusions, too, to stories that were yet to be written when Paul Linneberger died. One of these concerned the robot, the rat, and the copt, whose visions are referred to herein. But at the center of Quest of the Three Worlds, it is the personality of Kasher O'Neill himself. Although Part 4, originally Three to a Given Star, with its self-parody of Smith's animal-derived cultures, is tangential to the others, the theme of most of the book is Kasher's spiritual quest rather than travel or adventure as such. Paul Linnebarger, as has been said elsewhere, was deeply religious and in most of his science fiction, he seemed to be trying to reconcile the visions of Christianity and science, of evolution and revelation. Whether he had fully developed his ideas on the destiny of mankind, we may never know. For Quest of the Three Worlds, it doesn't matter. It is a story of personal salvation rather than human destiny. One could compare the work rather loosely to Pilgrim's Progress. The lords of the instrumentality, 
as materialist utopians, had sought for thousands of years to eradicate the spiritual, and even in Kasher's time, they maintain an embargo on the spread of religion. The underpeople, some of whom have obviously symbolic names like Dalma, Alma, meaning soul in Spanish, and truth, are almost the only custodians of the old strong religion, and are thus appropriate guides for his pilgrimage. It isn't all merely a matter of symbology, of course. Until the rediscovery of man, few men have faced the agony of moral consciousness and moral choice. All decisions have been made for them by the instrumentality. Kasher O'Neill, like others of his time, must rediscover what it means to be a free human being. If he also discovers the secrets of Christianity, it is only as a free man that they can have any meaning for him. No doubt one could find some parallels to Bunyan in grotesque characters such as Murray Madigan and John Joytree, as well as in the role of the underpeople's spiritual guides. And Kasher is very much like Bunyan's pilgrim in his progress past the temptations of the city of Hopeless Hope, Kermes d'Orgoil, and the deep, dry lake of the damned Irene. But we should not try to stretch parallels too far. The 13th Nile is not necessarily heaven, and can be understood better allegorically, as a state of the soul. In any case... Don't be put off by such parallels. Pilgrim's Progress once turned up on a list of classics that had bored the most readers, but Cordwainer Smith is never boring. Like the rest of his works, Quest of the Three Worlds is filled with invention, from the funny robot who doesn't know what to make of the improper object coming out of the hippy-dipsy, to their dramatic journey across Henrietta in a tank that anchors itself to the ground to avoid being blown away. If you've read anything else of Smith, you don't need this introduction to tell you how good he can be. But if Quest of the Three Worlds is your first exposure to this unique mythographer of a bizarre and wonderful imaginary future, you won't want to miss any of the rest. Smith's universe, sooner or later, must be experienced as a whole. John J. Pierce, Berkeley Heights, New Jersey, June 7, 1978 I waited to read the introduction until I had finished the book summary, and I'm glad I did. It gave me a chance to sift through those references and ideas that apparently all readers of Cordwainer Smith struggle with and enjoy. Although I can't say I liked the book as much as Mr. Pierce, it is an interesting romp across unusual planets. Before we get into the discussion, it's time for our favorite game. Did the cover artist read the book? I think this is a pretty obvious yes, although it's hard to tell how far he read since the scene with the tiger and the horse on the Emerald Cliff happens in Chapter 2. So, I'm going to move on. To start our discussion, let's take a look at the main character, Kasher O'Neill. He's both a proxy for the audience and a man in the progress of leaving behind his past ideas and goals to transform into a happier man. Born on the desert planet Mizer in the capital city of Kahir along the First Nile, nephew and heir apparent to the selfish dictator named Karaf, Kasher lives his life in exile. Something referred to as the Day of Blood marked the end of Karaf's reign, something that Kasher himself helped bring about. He thought that Colonel Wetter and his supporters were right to want to overthrow the current status quo, so he allowed the massacre of palace residents to occur while Kuroff escaped to his retirement planet. But what followed was mere tyranny. Colonel Wetter's work is frequently mentioned as a reign of terror and virtue. This is actually a reference to other historical events like the French Revolution, which also had periods of turmoil as leadership changed and the people suffered through violence. Presumably due to being outspoken about his disagreement with Wetter's tactics, Kasher is banished. The only acknowledgement he gets from Wetter and the instrumentality, the general governing body of humanity that may or may not choose to interfere with planetary affairs, is an unlimited travel pass. 
While worth a thousand fortunes, this pass makes it clear that nothing will be done for the people of Mizur and the Twelve Niles, and Kasher is free to leave. It is now up to Kasher O'Neill to free his people from tyranny and bloodshed. He carries the weight of knowing he contributed to the Day of Blood, and afterward shook Wetter's hand while there was still blood on the cuff of the man's uniform. Does he wish for justice or revenge? By the time we meet him, he's not really sure. Unfortunately, Kasher is also haunted by his uncle's bad name, for Karaf was not violent but collected a vast harem for his pleasure den, and only sometimes is a wealthy person or planetary lord willing to offer the nephew any aid. Humanity has spread across the stars, though they still maintain connections to Manhome through their cultural history, such as pieces of Soviet society or rules passed down through North Australian, aka Norstrillian, customs. The fact that Kasher's family name is O'Neill might also be an indicator of this. Kasher meets many rich and powerful people who can afford things like Earth Coffee or the immortality drug Strewn. Humanity is currently living through an age called the Rediscovery of Man, now on to its second century of popularity. Robots and animals spliced under people live alongside humans on dozens of planets, and old Earth names are getting popular again. While traveling from world to world, pleading for weaponry, Kasher has nothing but Miser's liberation on his mind. It's unclear how many worlds he had to visit before ending up on Pontopodon, the gem planet, and being gifted a great green ruby in exchange for helping with their horse problem. Most people have some psychic ability, and the hereditary dictator of that world, seemingly a competent leader, made sure to peek inside Kasher's mind before allowing him to leave with such a weapon, lest he become another tyrant himself. Similarly, Truth, the turtle girl in charge of Henrietta, the storm planet, used her immense mental powers to deduce that Kasher O'Neill would be capable of bringing peace to his homeworld, as well as useful to her household in scaring off the legendary, yet insane, captain, John Joytree. Kasher does so, Princess Bride-style, by threatening to leave the man eyeless and limbless. Along the way, Kasher learns bits and pieces about illegal Old Earth religion that have survived the instrumentality's dislike for it himself carrying some nugget of belief in the sign of the fish long before he's introduced to a crucifix. After his encounter with Truth and having his memory scrambled, Kasher is without green ruby or spaceship as she has him teleported through Space 3 back to the surface of Mizer, the sand planet. But he now wields incredible mental powers inherited from both the Turtle Girl and a legendary space witch. No asteroid strike or city bombing is needed to reach Colonel Wetter, and Kasher is amused by his younger self, who hoped to give a great speech in the style of Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, stating his intent. But it is easier than that. He simply flips a few mental switches and leaves Wetter incapable of doing anything but improving the planet. Afterward, drained of purpose, Kasher visits his mother to wish her well. They briefly discuss what he has done, what he has become, and how his wife is long dead in a boating accident. He then visits the daughter he didn't know he had to close the door firmly on his past, and follows his gut instinct to travel to the 13th Nile. Dalma, the dog woman, meets him along the way, leading him to the city of Hopeless Hope, where people worship endlessly, with full confidence that they're getting it right, then to Kermiz Dorgoyle, where no one worships anything at all. Both are comfortable places, but do not have the answers Kasher desires now that he is devoid of meaning and purpose, just as Dalma predicted when he first briefly met her on the gem planet. Characters sometimes experience visions, and one of them leads Kasher to be paired up with Salalta, a strong dancer and powerful telepath who was once a lady of the instrumentality. 
the two of them crossed the deep, dry lake of Damned Irene to the quell of the 13th Nile, a lush place where they can make up their own future, sending their minds out into the universe. You got all that? The most challenging parts of this book to talk about are the references to religion. Mainly Christianity, though others are practiced in the city of Hopeless Hope, otherwise known as Jwin's Joe, as well as Kasher's relationship with women. The two are linked, since almost all discussions about religion are held with women. These female characters appear in places of knowledge and or power, where they have some impact on Kasher's life, uh, for just a few moments before returning to their place in the universe as a princess, a worker, a planet's caregiver, save for Salalta. Until he meets his life mate, these women represent alternatives to Kasher's life path, a timeline spent with Genevieve, or a version of events that let him parent his daughter or are vessels for the religion that follows Kasher down his chosen road. There is a lot of talk about the sign of the fish, the ever-dying man nailed to two pieces of wood, the first forbidden one, the second forbidden one, and the third forbidden one, presumably uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, each connected to the old strong religion. Every part features a significant faith moment, including an extremely brief connection with Dalma in the first part that I cut somewhere during the summarizing process. Growing up non-religious myself, I was very confused by the sign of the fish mention, though I know enough about Jesus' reincarnation mythology to guess it was a Christian thing. As touched upon in the introduction, the author was a man of faith and he couldn't separate his sci-fi from his beliefs about the universe. Unfortunately, the way it's incorporated into the story can feel a bit unhinged, even though it's really important. Uh, sometimes words and names of places are thrown in with no explanation, or different characters will have different names for the same place. For example, the deep dry lake of the Dam Dyrene is also called the Shrine of Shrines. At another point, Kasher remembers going through Space 3 when he was teleported to Miser from Henrietta, and he remembers visions of some sort of agreement with three other beings that's never expanded upon. Though apparently it is in one of the books written for, uh, written for the author based on his notes after he died. These visions send Kasher to find the 13th Nile, the Holy of the Unholies, uh, when he is otherwise purposeless, almost a call, you might say. A particularly difficult, seemingly religious item in the book is the life-prolonging Santa Clara drug called Strune. That's how it's introduced, as a Santa Clara drug, spelled S-A-N-T-A-C-L-A-R-A, all one word. This possibly originates from Santa Clara a.k.a. St. Clair, who believed in joyous poverty. A running theme of Quest of the Three Worlds is the idea that true happiness comes from accepting yourself for the small, insignificant thing that you are and living a modest life that way, as well as recognizing what is truly important, like soil on a gem, uh, gem planet or caring for lost souls with your wealth. The use of the name Santa Clara to refer to a drug that is only available to those rich enough to buy it and only administered to those who deserve it least must be a deliberately ironic choice. It is a reminder that the best way to live is simply and to grow old, not to live forever for money and pleasures, planning extravagant ways to be buried like ships carrying bodies towards the stars. Now, this is only possible if the simple life is accompanied by a deep spirituality and sense of self. It's notable that the characters Kasher meets who live their lives like this are underpeople who have been mixed with animal DNA, removing them slightly from true human problems as well as privileges. 
The dog woman Dalma hints at her Christian knowledge via telepathy, indicating it's not just about being a dog willing to work, but knowing some deeper secret of the universe. Truth, the turtle girl, also alludes to this, though her case is a bit more muddled by her extreme devotion to her master. Speaking of which, I feel there are some 2001 A Space Odyssey vibes connected to Madigan and his 30,000 year life and sleep and everything. I also think Truth might be an allegory for St. Clair and her devotion to God above all else, living for him and not for herself or for materialism. While I could continue to dissect the appearances of religion within the text, the task is honestly a little daunting and exhausting, so I'll leave it to my listeners to draw their own conclusions. For example, the comfortable city of Kermes d'Orgoyle, whose name might translate as fate or celebration of pride in French, is portrayed as dangerous for its lack of faith, even though the people there are more welcoming and laid back than the religious sages of Jwinsjo. Let's not forget that in old Christian tradition, it is a terrible sin to turn guests away, and they're very welcoming. Then, upon leaving that city to enter the deep, dry lake of Damned Irene, it seems to be impossible for anyone to cross the desert save for Kasher O'Neill, who has the wealth of a thousand lives in his head. Parts of the allegory fall apart for me when the goals are unreachable by anyone else, though Kasher speculates that there were others who lived at the 13th Nile in the past. Doing a little research, I can only guess that the damned Irene from that place's name refers to Saint Irene, who had a divine revelation and a rebirth of sorts while cutting ties with her father and fake idols. Presumably, the people of Kermes d'Orgoyle think Irene as one of those damned souls left to turn to dust when she might have actually made it across to where none of them can see. Moving on from religion to women, Kasher has a funny attitude towards them. I think it's supposed to run parallel to his acceptance of the old strong religion into his heart, as his perception of the female characters changes over time. Honestly, as a woman myself, it's not always comfortable to read because these characters exist more for Kasher's growth than true depth. Aside from truth, maybe? The physical characteristics of not just the main cast, but also feminine robots and feline underpeople are constantly touched upon. If a female character is intelligent, Mention of it is always mixed with something about her girlishness or how it makes her more alluring. That or she's too old or and weather-beaten to be found sexy, like Dalma the dog woman. During part two, when the administrator of Henrietta wants Kasher to kill a mysterious underperson, he says this, A traveled young man like you would know what to do with a knife. And a little girl, too. Not very big. Easy job. Don't give it another thought. While I think this statement is meant to be as unsettling to Kasher as it is to the reader, seeing as he's talking to a drunk ruler ordering the death of a seemingly harmless entity, there is something about it that just gets added to the bucket of disconcerting phrases. The first significant woman in Quest of the Three Worlds is Genevieve, and she's a pretty standard sci-fi love interest, also named after Smith's wife. Extremely beautiful, slender, girlish, and a princess of sorts, Genevieve is pointedly held up as a possible direction for Kasher's life to take. He could have stayed on Pontapadon and become her lover, living out his life without justice or revenge, but something stops him. Though he doesn't know it, at this time he's introduced to another important woman, who we later learn is named Dalma. The second significant woman is the mysterious character of Truth. That's spelled T-apostrophe-Ruth. She is particularly unpleasant to read about at times. On the one hand, she reminds me a lot of the childlike empress from The NeverEnding Story, because she's forever young, while being incredibly wise, knowledgeable, and older than anything around her. 
She's even compared to the serenity of Madonna, just as the childlike empress includes references to the Buddha. However, Kasher's detailed observations about her physical appearance and clothes push truth out of the childlike category and into a bit of the Lolita fetishized territory. Her age plus her youthful appearance reminds me of a game I've seen YouTubers play called Guess the Anime Character's Age. This is because there are a lot of girls in Japanese animated TV shows and their comic book counterparts that are either adult or ancient, perhaps a mom or a thousand-year-old dragon in human form, that look exactly like children. Examples include Dance in the Vampire Bund and Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid, both of which feature extremely young-looking female characters who are sexualized despite that. During Kasher's conversations with Truth, the text admits his fascination with her and his nostalgic sort of love for her that are, quote, ever so slightly tinged with male desire, unquote. Later, the text says, he had never been a man who had an improper taste for children, but there was something about this person which was not childlike at all. He thought a similar thing when he met Genevieve, thinking to himself that she's not his usual type, despite quickly becoming attracted to her. In response to these fantasies, Truth the Turtle Girl seems to recognize them, possibly feel similarly, and is even tempted to act upon them for her own gain, but does not. She's already tied to her master in every way, caring for his body in all sorts of ways while he's asleep. I don't mean to condemn all media that plays with ideas of age and physicality and sexuality, but I do want to acknowledge that consciously moving away from media depicting childlike people as sexy is as valid as avoiding tropes like romantic stalking and born sexy yesterday coined by the pop culture detective. It's okay to fantasize about fictional scenarios and characters. It's not okay to perpetuate harmful ideas that disproportionately feature men having power over women and girls via situations that make it seem morally acceptable. I'm pretty sure if the circumstances featured in Quest of the Three Worlds were reversed, with a grown woman enamored with a young boy, it wouldn't even hint at any sort of romantic chemistry between the two. That being said, I will admit I find it amusing that the power dynamic within Quest of the Three Worlds seems solidly in Truth's camp, as Kasha realizes she's more capable of patience and reassurance than he is, on top of her status as de facto ruler of Henrietta. She doesn't really need him, yet here he is feeling like he's met someone he knew in a past life. Then again, she exists for her master Madigan as a young, powerful, telepathic female born solely for the purpose of caring for him. She says so herself, stating that she exists only for him and doesn't care what happens to her when Madigan dies. Page 81 says, Pilots are for piloting, killers are for killing, women are for loving and forgetting. When you mix up their purposes, everything goes wrong. This seems to be how Kasher O'Neill thinks of females at the that point in time. The author also writes many passages that acknowledge female characters' steadfastness, uh, loyalty, and patience for intensive labor. Dalma the dog woman overseeing the dishwashing, Truth the turtle girl taking care of the old man for centuries, slow and steady, and Solalta the lady turned dancer honing her many skills. They're also recognized as being extremely intelligent and insightful. For example, Truth gambled and won on buying planets that ended up becoming profitable land for rent, increasing her master's earnings 40 times over. I would say that the author was going for a similar philosophical exploration as the writers of Chobits, 
a Japanese graphic novel which tells the story of a young man who ends up with a very special humanoid robot computer living in his home and starts to develop feelings for her. The problem is that this beautiful robot, innocent as a child and powerful enough to knock out the city's power grid, is incapable of having sex, lest her reset button be activated and her memories erased. The human boy must learn to love her regardless of this, to love her as she is without relying on sexual attraction or power fantasies to bind them. Another anime called Ghost in the Shell asks the question if a computer can have a soul, and Chobits answers by saying that perhaps robots' souls live inside the memories of their owners, since we may never be able to tell. The character of Truth in Quest of the Three Worlds is a lot like the robot character from Chobits, in that loving her physically is a taboo, even dangerous, psychologically as well as literally, since her master wouldn't allow it, and Kasher has to face everything else about her when she offers to give him a copy of her mind. The pure psychic power Truth offers would forever separate him from his fellow man, making him incapable of seeing women as only avatars and bodies. And through confronting all that she truly is, Kasher's attraction to her decreases, overshadowed by the magnitude of everything else. The memories he has of her later on settle into the longing one might feel for a lost friend, sister, child, or companion from another lifetime. Dalma the Dog Woman comes back into play as Kasher's spirit guide, fittingly taking the shape of, a, of man's best friend, old and reliable. Her companionship is friendly, motherly, and platonic. It's unfortunate that her age seems to play a part in this, but the relationship is still refreshing. Unfortunately, there are mysteries about her that might be answered in other books published after this one, mainly the identity of her master on Earth who sends under people like her to perform tasks across the galaxy. The final woman introduced is Kasher's true mate, the Eve to his Adam. Solalta is the alluring, mysterious dancer who was once a lady of great power within the instrumentality. The way she is presented to him, pointed out by someone else, makes it clear that Destiny has plopped her down in front of him for their life together, all their actions leading them here, to where they both are. On the one hand, I appreciate this strong woman, who kind of reminds me of Marsha from The Web of the Chosen, from a previous episode, as a woman chosen by forces outside her control, but who embraces the future ahead with all the risks. Unfortunately, she calls Kasher, my lord, despite the text making it seem like they'll exist as equals, him catching birds because he's a fighter and her cooking them because she's better at it. There's still an element of husband as Adam, as master, in their dynamic, though perhaps that's partly due to his godlike powers? It's a very Christian sort of relationship structure, which is framed as being harmonious and the foundation for their great partnership. Personally, I will have to group it with things I don't really like within the text, along with the instrumentalities stamping out religion and the weird way criminals and psychotics are handled. Yeah, it's nice to think about criminals being able to have a fresh start as forgetties, but psychosis isn't simply cured by forgetting your past. Some people really need medication and therapy for their brain chemistry. While I'm at it, I'll put Gosigo in this pile. He's the Forgetty from Part 2 who is a nice enough character, while being described as a brown, ancient-looking Hindu. I think he's the only confirmed character of color in the book. Let's end on a lighter note. The size of TV screens in science fiction is really interesting to me. I remember reading Fahrenheit 451 and being impressed that Ray Bradbury could imagine televisions that filled entire walls, 
and equally impressed that the 1966 film adaptation managed to produce screens the size of large flat screens in an attempt to replicate the character's experience. A recent podcast example are the uh, video screen phones from The Voyage of the Space Beagle, written during the 1930s and 40s. Meanwhile, today's book, Quest of the Three Worlds, features a movie screen, either a projection or a hologram, on the extremely wealthy gemstone planet in the home of its ruler that is described as being no more than a meter tall and a meter wide, or three feet by three feet. By my standards, as a 21st century Earthling, that is incredibly small for a far future society. <laughs> if you are the dictator of a planet made of money, your home theater should rival Hollywood movie premieres. And what about humanity's ability to turn people into machines, more or less? More importantly, have you read Anne McCaffrey's Brainship series? It's one of my favorites. Partnership uh, was one of my first non-Dragon Rider McCaffrey reads. There are very few alien species in this series, but the human relationships in a future world of space travel make it great. Each book features a prominent human character whose body is incapable of living on its own, paralyzed, or would die incredibly young. So their parents opted to have them placed inside a metal shell and taught to be a living computer. They act as orchestra conductors amongst a sea of wires, sensors, databanks, and so on either tucked away inside ships or housed in space stations. Some have absolutely no memory of having a body to move with, so their ship is their body, and this creates interesting dynamics with the people around them or riding with the cargo. The characters of Folly and Sam in Quest of the Three Worlds remind me of the Brainship series, and I'm curious if McCaffrey got any inspiration from Cordwainer Smith's work. Similarly, the strange evolution that happens to Earth animals transplanted to other worlds is pretty fun mainly on Henrietta the Stormy Planet. Flying killer whales, huge towers of air coral, and wind people all make appearances. The feral people in particular remind me of Junji Ito's Uzumaki comic, which also features crazed wild men and boys who ride tornadoes across a destroyed landscape. In researching bits of Quest of the Three Worlds, I learned that a music creator called Ramsog, or Joseph C., wrote several digital albums based on the locations featured in this book, although each one is called Quest of the Four Worlds, numbers 1, 2, 3, and 4. They are Pontopodon, Henrietta, Miser, and Linshoten 15, and you can find them on bandcamp.com. Each album has songs based on parts of the story that take place on the planet the album is named for. Pontopodon has songs like Land of Gems, Immortal Horse, and Ruby Princess Laser. I think Romsog slash Joseph C. might be German, since the song names sometimes feature words like D instead of the. According to Google Translate, Romsog as a name means space absorbing, I think. The songs are pretty cool, very atmospheric and instrumental. If I was more savvy regarding copyright, I would purchase the albums and use them as this episode's background soundtrack. I actually found them by googling the word Sucha and they came up along with uh, online parts of Cordwainer Smith's work. I like the super sci-fi covers. They remind me of old PC games. You should check them out. Ooh boy, what a ride. This book wasn't long, but it was hard to get through. So many things are introduced very suddenly with no explanation, and I struggled with keeping or cutting a lot of scenes. If I'd read it previously, I might have been able to keep the summary a bit shorter, but I get so afraid I'll miss some juicy tidbit a listener might find interesting. 
What do you think of all the little references and allusions? What is the meaning behind the Turtle Girl's name being Truth? Who do you think Dalma's true master is? Why is this universe populated with so many animal-spliced underpeople? What do names like Blinshoten, Henrietta, and Finsternis signify? What is that strange entity encountered by the three machine people in Part 4? Why are there so many European names and words like O'Neill and Sukhasaka, but mostly cultural references to Old North Australia? Is Finsternis turned Alma the daughter of John Joytree, or a wild wind person, or someone else? Also, is everyone a telepath these days? Let me know what you thought in the comments. Anyway, I'm really looking forward to this next episode, the children's episode, because it's a book I've enjoyed for many years now. We'll see if the nostalgia holds up. Until that comes out, you can check out my Instagram. Don't forget to subscribe and click the bell notification on YouTube, and be sure to vote for Planetary Health. Bye-bye, Earthlings.